Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, the podcast where we strive to give you food for thought. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today we have a special episode we are doing with Checkpoint Charlie Foundation to commemorate the 60th anniversary of one of the most iconic speeches of our time. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. If you don't recognize the voice, it's U.S. President John F. Kennedy, and he delivered this speech that lasted less than 10 minutes in front of the Rathaus, or City Hall, in the Berlin district of Schöneberg. Back then, Berlin was the front line of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West, and his words shook the world. But does this iconic speech still have relevance today? And do Berliners, especially younger ones, even identify with it or with President Kennedy anymore? To answer those questions and more, we hosted a town hall a few days back with high schoolers and recent graduates in Berlin. These Berliners joined us via Zoom, while two of the three panelists were with me here in our Potsdamer Platz studio. They were Johanna Rüdiger, who heads social media strategy at Deutsche Welle, the German network that provides journalistic and cultural content in 32 languages around the globe. She also has a direct link to the Gen Z generation through her personal TikTok channel, which has more than 150,000 followers and more than 2.5 million likes. Also joining us was Rachel Tausenfreund, a senior fellow with the German Marshall Fund's geostrategy team. She specializes in U.S.-German relations, the European Union, and democracy, and is my co-host on our joint production, Transatlantic Takeaway. Our third panelist joined us via Zoom from New York. He is Robert F. Kennedy biographer Rick Allen, a media and technology executive who's been a speechwriter, fundraiser, and campaign manager for a host of U.S. presidential and Senate candidates. He also served as a deputy assistant to President Clinton and helped create AmeriCorps. I asked Rick to set the scene for us. Why did JFK speak here in Schöneberg? What follows is an edited version of our town hall. I think the reality of the circumstances that presidents don't actually pick the locations of their speeches. It's usually set first by the host, in this case, the West German mayor. And then presidents have advanced teams that take a look at locations. And then the Secret Service comes in and takes a look at where the locations can accommodate enough of the public, but still be safe for the president. But this location made particular sense because it was in front of City Hall. They needed to accommodate a large crowd. And the Council on Foreign Relations uh, in the U.S. said afterwards that by some counts, six out of every 10 residents of Berlin, of West Berlin, turned out to see the young president. And I think the last component of the location choice was that the president's brother, Robert Kennedy, who was also the attorney general of the United States, had spoken on that site before, essentially four months before this speech. And what was JFK trying to accomplish with this? Why do this? Why give this speech in West Berlin? The speech that the president gave was in the context of what had been one of the seminal subjects his presidency had had to deal with, and that was the freedom and opportunity in West Berlin with a divided city 
and Berlin being in the zone of control by the Soviet Union. And there was an increased effort by the Soviet Premier Khrushchev to squeeze down on Berlin's freedom, to try to position the young President Kennedy, the youngest American president ever elected, trying to put pressure on him for the West to turn its back on West Berlin and allow it to be assimilated really into the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had threatened to enter into a peace treaty with the East Germans and to act in accordance with the sovereignty of East Germany. And we're trying to close down routes into Berlin, which were by air and by the Autobahn. And so Kennedy had been hard at work on this issue for more than two years. He had been able to rally the Allies to the defense of West Berlin. He had been able to assert the American uh, rights under the wrap-up of World War II. And he felt that it was important to go to the city itself. The wall had gone up, and it was time to reassert the primacy that West Berlin played in the eyes of the United States and in its vital national interests but even more so to send a message to the world that the free nations were standing behind the territorial integrity of West Berlin, the functioning democracy there, and holding it out as a model to the rest of the world. His speechwriter and closest aide, Ted Sorensen, writes in his book that when Kennedy got back on Air Force One as they were leaving Berlin for Ireland, Sorensen said, Kennedy sat across from me, weary but happy. And he said, we'll never have another day like this as long as we live. Well, author and academic Nicholas Mills wrote in an op-ed some years back that the speech was the opposite of saber-rattling. And that was kind of surprising, perhaps, with the seemingly provocative statements by Kennedy, like this one. Freedom has many difficulties. And democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. So my question to Rachel is, do you agree with Nicholas or uh, is this saber rattling? The term saber rattling is always a little bit problematic um, to my mind. And after all, it wasn't the West that put up a wall. It was the East. So I think there is a case to be made that he wasn't being aggressive. He was being aggressively defensive, which is to say we are very firm in our principles. Look at inside this wall. We are an example. So I think it's fair to say it was a proud speech. It was a very decisive speech. But I don't think it was aggressive in the sense of attack. It was aggressive in the sense of pride of principle and certainty that the West was going to be right in the end. What did the speech do for German-U.S. relations and for democracy movements in the Soviet sphere? So I think it was a, I mean, I'm not, you know, an expert in that part of the history, but I think it was a powerful speech in the East and also in West Berlin. So my ex, she's a Berliner, and her mom, and I think her mom and her aunt saw this speech. They were one of the six in 10 West uh, Berliners who were at the speech. I mean, interestingly, she said the funny thing about it is the crowd was so huge, the sound wasn't good. So the only thing anybody in the audience understood were the two times this German sentence (laughs) 
was uttered, right? It was like, blah, blah, blah. Ich bin ein Berliner, blah, blah, blah. Ich bin ein Berliner. So this explains also partially the applause because it was cluelessness in between. But I mean, it was a powerful sentiment and it was powerful for the spirit of West Berlin. And you see that, I mean, as sort of an American in Berlin, when I encounter people who are 60 plus, you know, they almost always mention this or the Luftbrücke or the speech as a sort of powerful, powerful message of friendship and support. But also in the East, toward the East, the resilience also in the and the strong support that the speech symbolized, right? Without the actions of the Luftbrücke, right, the air transport to support West Berlin, the speech would have been meaningless. But the two together sent a very powerful signal that lasted, I think, generations. Did it spur on democracy movements in the Soviet sphere at that point or at I mean, some point? Arguably, right, because there were big protests in the in the late 60s, uh, big important protests that then also resulted in some violent repression. But I think that it did feed the fire of these democracy movements in the East, certainly. Johanna, JFK delivered his speech via television and radio and in person to the many West Berliners who turned out. Ruby, who is one of the Nelson Mandela School students at our town hall, asks this question. How much more impact could JFK have had with his speech and Ich bin ein Berliner line if he had access to social media and the Internet at the time? Lots of speeches wouldn't work well on social media, wouldn't work well on TikTok. But this one absolutely would have gone viral because, you know, on social media as journalists also, we're always looking to connect to the audience. We are always looking to be really authentic and relatable. And we are always, when we as journalists write scripts, we are always looking for this thump stopper moment that makes you stop scrolling and also to be relatable in a sense that people watch it and, you know, immediately what someone is talking about. And with that sentence, everyone knew, okay, this is what he meant in one sentence. And everybody, it was just a feeling that was transported. And I think it would have been a perfect social media speech and it would have gone absolutely viral as well, yeah. Well, definitely it was the soundbite, yeah. <laughs> as you say, the Ich bin ein Berliner part. Are there German, American, or other foreign leaders who are particularly good at using social media to get world-changing messages across? Oh, interesting questions. I mean, there isn't really one I can point to that does it really well. I mean, for politicians, what always gets them is they have to be really authentic and relatable on TikTok or now Instagram on Reels or YouTube Shorts. And so that's like the point that's always <laughs> seems to be very hard for them. And the politicians who do a great job on social media, you can tell right away they have a team that, you know, advises them on how to do it exactly. And they do trends and people do appreciate it when they think, you know, they know what platform they're on and they're speaking the language of the platform. But in general, they're still struggling with it, I feel like, and struggling to be authentic. But they really do have to be on these platforms, just as we journalists have to be on the platforms, because this is where, you know, young people get all their news from social media. So, of course, you have to be there. And I think we saw in the last... Um, German election uh, a couple of years ago that suddenly, you know, young people were all like voting for the Green Party and for the FDP. 
and especially the FTP part surprised many people. But if you had been on TikTok, you would know why, because, you know, these FTP politicians were like early adopters of the platform and were very present on it. So, yeah, I think for politicians, they definitely have to be on these platforms and they have to speak the language of the platform and you can still see them struggle doing that. Rachel wanted to add something, and I think Rick did as well. So, Rachel, go ahead, and then Rick can add okay. what he wanted to add. I hope I'm not taking uh, Rick's point. And I mean, <laughs> I don't know if President uh, Vladimir Zelensky is on TikTok or social media, but he's certainly the politician in the current moment who is delivering really powerful messages, granted, in a powerful circumstance. And I think it connects actually directly to this speech and indicates the importance of this speech because part of what Zelensky does is essentially paraphrasing this speech. I mean, part of the Ukrainian message is we are all Ukrainians as a sort of frontline country defending freedom and democracy right now. So if someone were to give this speech right now, and in the end, this is what Zelensky is doing sort of over and over again, the line would be, Yakivlanka, right? I'm from Kiev, or maybe I'm from one of the frontline cities that was just recently liberated. So I think there's a direct connection between that speech and the speeches Zelensky is giving now. Rick, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I, I think that point is a really essential one. If you say that Kennedy's principal message was to relate the conditions faced by Berliners and make that the business of everybody in the world, then that is precisely what President Zelensky is doing with Ukraine. Regarding social media uh, efficacy, it obviously is a generational tool, and it's easier for young people who grew up using those tools to be effective with them. But in the United States, there are many leaders who are quite effective on social media. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, a young congresswoman, very, very good. But tools can be used for a positive influence as well as negative influence. And I would argue that Barack Obama has been uh, particularly successful in his presidency and his post-presidency in utilizing social media to put out encompassing uh, messages that reach young people. And regrettably, Donald Trump has figured out how to utilize <laughs> those same tools to spin his messages and his inaccuracies. And so the capacity of political leaders to push out information at speeds that John Kennedy would have found breathtaking and with a global reach uh, those tools are now much more powerful, much more pervasive, and communicate exceptionally well. For John Kennedy, it was important to be in the moment and in the place, which he thought captured the intensity of public opinion on a global basis for what was the principal fight of his era, which was democracy up against uh, communist version of society, which was antithetical to human rights. Well, let me ask you a quick follow-up, and then we want to open it up to the students and graduates to see if they have any questions. But this is a question, again, by Ruby from Nelson Mandela School, and she was asking whether you think social media would have affected JFK in terms of how he presented himself or his opinions. I mean, we see Zelensky in a, you know, not camouflage, but the olive, you know, sort of looking like he's at war. Do you think there would have been that kind of messaging? I mean, knowing what you know about John F. Kennedy? 
I don't think he would have regarded it as appropriate to uh, wear the garb of an active military conflict. I think President Zelensky's in a different circumstance. President Kennedy was certainly a man uh, very much of his era. And what I think he was able to do incredibly successfully is match the moment and give expression to concerns that were broadly held by the public. Rhetoric itself has changed in the intervening time. And you referenced it yourself by saying the speech was effective because the soundbite was so clear. That whole notion of soundbites didn't really exist in 1963. And so the way politicians communicate, the brevity that's required of their messaging is very different. And even in the time of Bill Clinton in the 90s, when I worked with him in the White House, we had direct discussions about the fact that the kind of high tone rhetoric of John and Robert Kennedy worked extremely effectively in the in the 60s. President Clinton thought that it was essential to communicate in the 90s in a much more direct and simple style, because, again, the objective, as previous commentators have noted, is the authenticity of the speaker and that message. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear more of our edited town hall commemorating 60 years since JFK's Ich bin ein Berliner speech. Stay tuned. Hello, Common Ground Berlin listeners. My name is Kari. And my name is Manuel. And if you are learning German, you may have come across our Easy German videos on YouTube, where we interview strangers in the streets of Berlin. But did you know that we also have a podcast to help you learn German? On the Easy German podcast, Kari and I chat about daily life in Germany. We break down German expressions and recommend resources to help you become fluent. And if you decide to become an Easy German member, you'll get some nice extras. To listen, just search for Easy German in your favorite podcast app or head to easygerman.fm. Hi there, here's Diog Pirsch. I'm the host of Europe Talks Solidarity. Is Gen Z transforming the way solidarity is lived in Europe? How can cities be transformed into inclusive spaces? What can we learn from local initiatives about solidarity? How can international solidarity be done in a responsible and sustainable way? There are just a few questions we will be approaching on Season 2 of Europe Talk Solidarity soon. Join me for all of that and more. Produced by Salto European Solidarity Course Research Center. Till then. Welcome back to our commemoration of John F. Kennedy's Ich bin ein Berliner speech, which he delivered 60 years ago today. We continue now with an edited version of our town hall with young Berliners who spoke with RFK biographer Rick Allen, head of DW's social media strategy, Johanna Rüdiger, and GMF's Rachel Tausenfreund. As we rejoin our town hall, one of the graduates, Caleb, is introducing himself. I'm studying social work in Potsdam right now. It's a city about an hour out on train. My question was, when talking with peers, I have the feeling that America has lost a lot of its respect, I'll say in quotation marks, ever since 
Obama left office, so throughout Trump and even throughout Biden's presidency. Do you think that that would change the effect that the sort of speech that JFK gave would have on especially the youth of Germany or Ukraine, if we take that as a current example? Rachel, do you want to take that one? Um, Sure, I'll take that one. I mean, yes, I think that has always a pretty significant effect. Uh, That said, these things fluctuate more than one would suspect to a degree that I find interesting. So when I first moved to Berlin, it was the George W. Bush era, and this was not a high point of German public opinion toward the U.S. And so the youth of that time would have been very skeptical of any kind of high-minded rhetoric coming from Bush. And there was a lot of high-minded rhetoric coming from Bush, but it really didn't land well in Germany or in Berlin. And then Obama comes, and I was at the uh, Zika when I don't know how many thousands of people. Was showed- he still senator? You mean 2008? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 2008 when senator, not even president Obama showed up and gave a speech and people were, you know, as excited, probably not as excited, but there was euphoria in the air as if this was the days of Kennedy. So that shift was pretty dramatic. And therefore, I think that the sentiment rebounds more than one would think. There can be no doubt that the American image has been tarnished since the heyday of 1963. You have the Vietnam War, you have Iraq, you have Trump, and yet there is still this desire to be excited and to believe in something. And I think that can be rekindled in the in the right moment with the right person and the right speech. Johanna, which, I mean, we mentioned several of the leaders who've given iconic speeches, and I'm wondering if you look at JFK's speech, if you look at Senator Obama in 2008, I think his speech when he was president here was not quite as well received necessarily because it came on the heels of of, uh, the NSA spying scandals, or when President Reagan in 1987 did his tear down this wall speech. Which one do you think resonates more with Germans nowadays? I mean... It was a long time ago that JFK spoke, but I'm just wondering, is that speech still the one that people hold up or are these other ones more in the popular vernacular? No, I think it's still relevant today. And the feeling of, you know, Berlin is a city of freedom. That's kind of um, why we actually called our um, at Deutsche Welle when we started the first TikTok account three years ago. We called it Berlin Fresh. And sort of the thought behind it was have Berlin as a symbol of freedom and as place of longing. And on this account, which is trying to reach young Americans, and we want to tell them what's it like to grow up in Germany. And you might never come to Berlin, but you have an idea, you have a vision, you know what it means. So it's more of a symbol than anything. And I think that still is true today. And that's what I hear, you know, from my young followers who are interested in Berlin and Germany or who just moved here but don't speak German yet. So a lot of international students, refugees and migrants. And for them, you know, Berlin is still like the city of freedom and you can be anyone you want to be and wear anything. And of course, they also complain you can't find an apartment, but, you know. But it's free except that. Yeah. <laughs> the apartments are not free. Yes. <laughs> tear down that. Tear down I, the so, uh, contract. So I, I think you're absolutely right. These are like the two sentences. Ich bin ein Berliner and tear down this wall. I think these are the two sentences. And with Obama, it's more like you have that image of him standing there next to the Siegessäule with the two speeches. But... 
I wouldn't say people necessarily remember one line. Well, I think because the wall he talked about tearing down was between races and uh, tribes and, you know, basically between uh, ethnicities and classes. And that's obviously still a problem today. I'm wondering, Rachel and Rick, which one of those that I mentioned, JFK, Obama and um, Reagan, which one do you think resonates more with Americans at this stage? That's a good question. I think I might have had a different answer two years ago. I agree with Johanna completely. I was at the Obama speech and I don't remember what he talked about. I just remember (laughs) there wasn't any really great line. I remember his speech at the convention much better. So a year ago, I might have said tear down this wall, that the Reagan message is a little bit more present for Americans, maybe to the extent that any of them are. Now, I think really with the war in Ukraine, this concept of we're with you in this fight and you are representing a fight for freedom, I think that's the message that can resonate really with everyone today. So my answer now is Ich bin ein Berliner. What about you, Rick? Is it still Ich bin ein Berliner or do you think the other two resonate more? Well, I'm enormously biased, so let me (laughs) admit that from the jump. But I completely agree that the circumstances we find ourselves in now because of the hot war in, in Ukraine, I think are more captured by the conditions that Kennedy spoke under and the impact his speech had in focusing the attention of the world in a extremely important struggle where what freedom could offer was so clearly juxtaposed against a completely different worldview and approach. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Ukraine. And so I think the two moments have to intersect in that way and amplify the impact, despite the fact that, let's be honest, for most young Germans and young Americans, using young as the adjective it's intended to be, they never experienced this in the course of their life. And so a speech by John Kennedy is in that same kind of foggy past that a speech by Abraham Lincoln or Julius Caesar might be. But the circumstances of this one And the vibrancy and appeal of Kennedy, who was such a young man at the time, I think helps to bring this forward into relevance in our own time. Did it make any impact on you as a nine-year-old? I'm dating you now, but um, you you shared with me that you were nine when he gave the speech. So I'm wondering if you saw it or if you remember it at that time. I don't. um, I, I would say that You know, we had many fewer media outlets than three networks in the U.S. And the impact of the Cold War was really omnipresent in our own classrooms. uh, We were doing duck and cover drills, which was supposed to protect us somehow in the case of a a nuclear or other attack, um, which seems so absurd now. But it was a very current concern then. And so those atmospherics around all of this, I very clearly remember, but it was in the later speeches, and particularly Robert Kennedy, uh, that intersected with my growing involvement in politics and being old enough to have a, you know, a perspective and a clearer memory. So I'm going to play one more clip from the speech, uh, and then I'm going to ask the young folks, since I'm getting older myself, uh, in the audience about their reaction to that. While the wall 
is the most obvious and vivid demonstration of the failures of the communist system. For all the world to see, we take no satisfaction in it, for it is, as your mayor has said, an offense not only against history, but an offense against humanity, separating families, dividing husbands and wives and brothers and sisters, and dividing a people who wish to be joined together. Okay, so my question to the students and graduates uh, and uh, others, do you still feel that the fate of democracy and freedom rests here in Berlin now that the wall is gone, now that there's been reunification? I mean, do you think that that has moved to some other place or is Berlin still the place to focus on these very big questions? And let's see if Quinn, okay, go ahead, Quinn. I'm sorry, you recently graduated from... From JFK, JFK, correct? Okay. The school named after this guy. Exactly, exactly. So I'm wondering, uh, you wanted to answer this question, you know, do you still feel that the fate of democracy and freedom rests here with us in Berlin? It rests anywhere where there's a ballot box where people can vote fairly. It's every person's responsibility to make sure they're voting for people who will keep democracy functioning and not like vote people with like misleading statements that want to take power for themselves and or take it away from people. Great answer, by the way. <laughs> um, Caleb, go ahead. I don't think Berlin is any more of a hot spot for democracy than anywhere else in the world. I think from what I've seen from over here in Germany, it seems like the U.S. is becoming more of a place where people look to see how democracy is functioning or how the, the free world is doing. Because when you look at the events of the last few years in the States with the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd, I think it's a much more... I'll say problematic, not to be offensive, but I think Germany is seen as a higher democratic area than the U.S. right now, especially from how people talk about it over here. I think the future of the U.S. is going to play a much larger role in how the world views democracy than the next few years of Germany, just because it feels a lot more stable here than across the pond. So, uh, Nino, go ahead and ask your question. Um, well, I wanted to also um, answer just like everybody else to the question that you asked. Right. Um, I think uh, with regards to democracy, I think especially today, this is an important question um, since we're seeing China as a big player, which is competing very much with the democratic system. And so I think that together as all democratic countries, we have to decide on how we're going to deal with a new world order where democracy in a few years, maybe in a couple of decades, isn't necessarily the predominant norm anymore, or at the very least, we have to be able to coexist with other systems of government that don't necessarily align with our values in every way, especially with regards to democracy. Um, So I think that's one of the most present challenges that we have with democracies. Johanna, how do politicians successfully connect with people or with their constituents today? Is it still via speech making? Is it via sound bites? Or is the most zing via like a TikTok video? I mean, how, who are the successful leaders who are communicating with the broadest audience, shall we say? Yeah, I think it's, it is all about being short and being and giving you the sound bites, but also explaining. I mean, that is one thing politicians don't really do well. And maybe sometimes even we journalists don't do well. We report the news, but we don't explain what it means for your everyday life. And it's so strict. I mean, TikTok has made me 
question that a lot because I know I cannot upload a video on a news topic if I don't explain to my followers what it means for their everyday life. I immediately get questions. And so I think to really step back and be like, okay, what does it mean? And to explain it well and then to build a community to really answer questions and to be authentic and relate back to your audience. I think that's something that journalists, of course, have to do, but politicians as well. And uh, that is very important and sometimes underestimated still. And I mean, going back to democracy, I do a lot of um, explaining about drafted laws in Germany, actually. And uh, lots of times I get questions because people say, Johanna, you've made this video months ago where you the law is drafted now. What are they doing? What is happening? And then I say, well, that's democracy. It still has to go to the Bundestag. They still have to debate it. They still have to vote on it. Then maybe it has to go to the Bundesrat and so on and then it's going to be implemented and so um, sometimes you know people get impatient but you just have to explain the process and there's reasons especially in Germany why things can take a long time and yeah which of course you know bureaucracy is another story in Germany but yeah I think um, that sometimes it's just really really important to break it down and explain. Uh, Rick, do you think our current president, President Biden, has been able to sort of manage this social media sphere? You mentioned, I think it was you who mentioned Donald Trump uh, and what he's been able to accomplish, which isn't necessarily a good thing for some people. But I'm wondering, has President Biden managed to do that? Because he's definitely not this young, charismatic president that JFK was when he was here in Schoenberg. I think mixed success. The Biden administration as an administration has used social tools relatively well. The problem with the shortening of what expected discourse is supposed to be and the context in which it's heard have changed dramatically for the worse since the 1960s. This was a very short speech that John Kennedy gave, but it's way beyond Twitter limits. Complex issues are very, very difficult as we just discussed, very, very difficult to explain adequately in a short medium. That means that the tool is easier to be used when you're trying to provoke discord and chaos. If you're trying to solve problems, well, then you do need to explain it. You do need to relate it to the lives uh, of your audience. If instead what you're trying to do is tap in to people's own prejudices and grievances, that's much easier to do swiftly and through the social media tools. So part of the evaluation of the efficiency of the Biden administration is that their side of the argument is much harder to pull off, I think, in social communication. And so they're trying to break it down into pieces where they can highlight contrast between the two parties and results in terms of what the government has delivered for individuals, infrastructure spending, a stable and growing economy, those sorts of things. I think they've been able to get out. They just need to do more of it uh, and more frequently. 
Let me ask our young Berliners in the audience, and forgive me if you don't like the moniker, but I want to differentiate from the old Berliners who are sitting, or at least this old Berliner who's on the microphone right now. Um, do you relate to any politicians uh, nowadays, be they in Germany, in Berlin, or the United States, and how do they effectively connect with you? Caleb, go ahead. I can, I can answer if nobody else will. Okay. For me, for example, AOC is somebody who feels very honest. It seems like I think a lot of it is both her being much younger, where the the politician in question couldn't be my grandparent. I think that makes a big difference in just feeling heard and feeling represented in politics, which plays a huge part. I think she does a good job of combining things that need to change, kind of that outrage that Rick Allen was talking about, where you talk about problems, except talking about problems for the working class that need to be addressed. And also she feels more down to her. She comes from a background of working to make her way up as a bartender. It feels a lot more honest than somebody like Trump who comes from a millionaire background. I think identifying with the politician plays a huge part and it's so much easier to identify with somebody who's younger. How do you follow her? JFK could be. Or how do you get your message from her? I mean, is it via social media or do you watch her on TV or YouTube channel? Or I mean, how do you follow what she's doing? Uh, it's a mixed Twitter. She's fairly active. I don't know if it's her or her PR team, but I think the younger the person is, the more I feel like they're doing their own PR, as untrue as that could be. She also does interesting outreach things. Like she went on on Twitch, a streaming website, and played games with people and just kind of talked about her platform. And when I'm more interested, after you get that initial pull then I'll read articles on what she's doing and I'll read interviews with her. I think it's a, it's a process, but making that first connection is super important. And she does a much better job of that than like a lot of the older generation of politicians do. Ruby, you have your hand up. Um, I'm from the Nelson Mandela school and I was going to answer the original question. And I was also going to talk about AOC because I feel that she is very relatable, especially as a, TikTok watcher myself. I see her kind of talk about not only political things, but also about her personal life. And like as a young person, getting kind of political information is incredibly informative and interesting. But to see someone talking with their friends or having a joke about something that they do in their day to day lives makes it feel so much more relevant to me. So I see her also use all of the different types of ways that you can use TikTok, like reacting to other videos, stitching people. So I feel like that feels incredibly relevant because it feels like any other video that I see, just that this time it's a politician who's hopefully actually done their work on researching the topics. That was an edited version of our town hall recorded a few days ago to commemorate John F. Kennedy's Ich bin ein Berliner speech that he gave 60 years ago today. This episode was made possible by the Checkpoint Charlie Foundation. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and thank you for listening. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed, our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and our intern is Cora Facet. Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partner is the German Marshall Fund of the United States. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. You can also check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. 